Before the episode begins, I'd like to tell you about the Science for Care podcast. Science for Care is an audio series produced by HealthTech for Care, an endowment fund committed to support and promote access to care for all patients. Each episode takes a concise look at some of the major advances in medicine, mRNA vaccines, antibiotics, gene therapy, the metaverse, and many more. The production is meticulous, the narration captivating, and the guests are true leaders in their respective fields. If you listen to Impulse, then you'll be for sure interested, so don't wait any longer and go listen to the first two seasons of Science for Care. Incredible. She actually brought with her her heart and the hearts of some of her association members after they'd been transplanted. And so to actually hold somebody's heart in your hand, Mm -hmm. and the first thing she said actually was, look at all the scarring in my heart. Her heart her interventricular septum, her ventricular wall, you could just see the scarring. She actually suffered with the type of HCM that we're trying to treat. Welcome to Impulse, the podcast where we dive into the most exciting breakthroughs in healthcare of our time. In each episode, I sit down with some of the most brilliant minds that are using technology to rethink the way we care. Inspiring and passionate to tell you all about their innovation and how it will impact the lives of millions. My name is Matthew Chafford. I'm a biomedical engineer and medical technology enthusiast. And in this podcast, we take the pulse of this incredible field. Welcome to Impulse. So, hello, Samir. Thanks for having me today and for accepting my invitation to record a new episode of Impulse with you. There's um, a lot of topics that I think we'll jointly touch on today. Um, Some that have been covered from different angles in past episodes. I'm thinking here about cardiology and the very first uh, episode of the show, which was recorded with someone called Ted Baldwin from Imagines, uh, with whom we talked about the applications of AI to medical imaging as a way to identify early markers of cardiac diseases. Um, from my understanding, you also shared that mission here at Haya Therapeutics to, to fight cardiac disease, but through a very different approach, which is linked to genetics uh, and in particular to the non-coding part of our genome. Um, in other words, the DNA sequence that does not encode for proteins that have a direct impact on, on cellular activity. Uh, I think the fancy term here is the dark matter of the DNA, and it might ring uh, a bell to some of our listeners. Um, I'm definitely not a specialist on these topics, <laughs> so I hope that the few remnants of my knowledge in biology and, and genetics from university will um, somehow help me, um, but I hope I won't be posing like two obvious questions. Um, and nevertheless, I'm very curious to learn about the science um, that behind your activities, how you came across the field in which you work, and what promises uh, this holds for the future of cardiology and I think for medicine in a broader context. So before we jump right in, would you like to present yourself? Sure. So uh, I'm Samir Anzain. I'm the scientific co-founder and CEO of Higher Therapeutics. Uh, my background, uh, I spent most of my career actually as an academic scientist. So bachelor's degree in biochemistry and molecular biology, uh, and then a PhD, postdoctoral fellow, and then junior group leader uh, studying the dark genome. Uh, I wouldn't feel too... Uh, uh, afraid of the dark genome and the lack of your knowledge. Uh, I think it's a, it's a rapidly emerging field in how we understand genetics, how we understand biology and disease. And even experts who are in the research field are still, uh, I would say, grappling with the implications and the potential of the dark genome. Um, so most of my academic career was actually spent studying the dark genome, uh, understanding what it is, uh, how it functions, and uh, I'm happy to give a perspective uh, on that and, and how I got into the space. That's, that's cool. I heard somewhere that your passion for genetics actually comes from the movie Jurassic Park. Yes. Is that true? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely so, true. <laughs> and I've realized actually that many, many scientists, molecular biologists are of, of my generation were also equally inspired. So yeah, I've told this story a few times, but absolutely, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. Um, I was always interested in science as a child. Uh, and then when I was 10 years old, so in 1993, um, my mother took me to, to watch Jurassic Park in the cinema. And explicitly, there was a moment in that movie where you had the double helix floating around uh, when they were in, the, in the, the theme park section looking at the laboratory. 
And that was really, I was like, wow, there's this thing called DNA, a double helix. It contains information. That information, we can resurrect dinosaurs. What does this mean? Uh, and actually, from that moment on, uh, molecular biology really became my focus. So from around that age, actually, I always planned to, to study biochemistry and molecular biology. That's why... Uh, once I finished uh, school, high school, I went to university and, and my degree, my bachelor's degree was in biochemistry and molecular biology. Uh, I actually started my bachelor's degree in 2001, which is really important when you put it into the context of why I ended up studying the dark genome. So 2001, and I remember it so clearly, there was um, the, the first draft of the human genome was sequenced. And... At that time, uh, I'm sure some of your audience remember, there was a huge debate. How many genes do we have? And this human genome project is going to really tell us our book of life. What is the, what is the information that allows us to, to be who we are? And there was all of these guesses that we must have millions of genes or hundreds of thousands of genes. And we must have very different genes compared to all the animals around us that are very different, like a fly or, or a worm. And when the draft human genome was published, and of course, we already had some clues before the publication, there was this huge surprise that really, you know, for me as a bachelor student, just starting my career in molecular biology, I was like blown away because all of a sudden we were being told that less than 2% of your whole genetic code, your book of life, was encoding genes. And at that time, we thought all of biology was, was hardwired by genes in the historical sense, which was a sequence of DNA that codes for a protein. And not only did we realize 98% of our, our DNA doesn't actually code for, for genes, that the genes that we do have, both in complement, function, and number, are almost identical to a, a fly or a worm, a simple worm. So that was really the, at the academic level, I'd already had a strong interest in molecular biology, but then realizing that human complexity and many aspects around human cognition and everything that makes us different from, from a, a worm or a fly and how we interact with the environment and how we develop disease might actually be coded for, or the information that drives that process might be not protein-based. Um, and so that was really the spark, that, that human genome draft and announcement in 2001 immediately sparked my interest in what then at the time was called junk DNA. So uh, the dogma was that this was evolutionary trash. It wasn't very useful. It was just, uh, it was, yeah, it was kind of like an ancestral junkyard of things that had accumulated in our DNA that didn't do anything. They weren't doing anything negative, so they were not removed. Um, and we used the word junk DNA to describe it. And at the time that was uh, the prevailing dogma. Um, and for many people in this field, many of the scientists who've emerged in the field of the dark genome, I think always had a slight uh, bad feeling when they heard the word junk DNA, uh, especially when, we con when you considered that at the level of genes, we were very similar to most of the uh, animal kingdom around us. Uh, so therefore, that was really the spark that led me to become absolutely focused, even at bachelor's level, in what could junk DNA be doing. And that's where I became very interested in gene regulation, transcriptional uh, control, and these type of things. So we, we touched on, um, I think, one of the core elements of, of, our, of our conversation and what we want to understand. I think it's, so tell us about what is this dark matter of the genome, um, because it's, I think it's very key to understand what you guys are working on at Higher Therapeutics. Um, yeah, for those that have never heard of it, how would you explain it in simple terms and what's the potential um, there? So. If I was to try to explain it at very, very simple terms, I would say if you think about genes or protein coding genes, so the 2% of your genome, these are really the, the building blocks, the analog material that make your bodies and cells. So you can think of them as bricks. If we use the analogy of a, of a brick that you use to build a building. So really at the most simplest term, if you think of what the dark genome is, it's really an architectural design. So you can imagine you can have a pile of bricks, proteins, in a big pile, but how do you turn a pile of bricks into 
a very small villa or into, uh, I don't know, the, uh, a palace. Now, actually, what makes up the, the small villa or the palace, it's essentially the same thing. It's the building blocks, it's proteins, it's bricks. But how do you uh, organize those bricks in the right way at the right time, at the right place, to build something very sophisticated like, I don't know, Buckingham Palace or, or something like that? And that actually is the architectural design. So, so that's the design, which is information uh, providing guidance to the builders from the architects of how do you put this brick in this location at this time to create this structure. And I think that's how you, one should think of the dark genome. It's the regulatory portion of DNA. It's the information processing portion, which essentially directs and guides how the bricks are assembled at the right time in the right place. But obviously the human body is much more complex than a building because it's dynamic. It responds to the environment. So if you imagine the, a, a building that could change its shape based on the direction of the wind, that is essentially how you should think of uh, an organism, that we're constantly adapting to our environment. And the actual bricks themselves don't change very much. Where the change is happening is the information to tell the bricks how to move and, and how to be structured. So that is essentially what the dark genome does. It's the, it's the center of information processing in your DNA. It's the software that essentially assembles and directs the hard way of hardware of bodies and cells, which are the bricks. And I think, I mean, some questions to that would be around, you know, how, how you can influence that. And I think we can, we will we'll go into these details maybe later on. Yeah. But going back to when you started, you know, studying, um, you know, I think you studied biochemistry and molecular biology with maybe this will to resuscitate some dinosaurs at the beginning. Um, but um, how, so how did you, um, what's been, you know, the journey that led you to the foundation of Haya? Because you mentioned early 2000s, the full genome is sequenced. There is like doubt that um, we don't know what's what's the use of these ninety eight percent of the genome, which is like a substantial amount. Um, how like has the dogma changed, and you know what's been the evolution that you know sure. led you to to be where you are now? So obviously, during my bachelor's degree, it became very important that when you think of gene function, it's not purely linked to say structure of a protein, it's also function is implicitly dependent on regulation. So something, a gene can only have its function if it's present in the right cell at the right time. And that was all through regulation. And what was becoming uh, really understood immediately after the human genome uh, draft was published was a lot of signatures of evolutionary conservation. So although less than 2% of your genome codes for protein, at that time and, and still today, if you look for signatures of evolutionary conservation, uh, it was significantly more of your genome was conserved, so it was uh, functionally constrained. And what we realized was those regions of conservation that were outside of the, the genes were the switches. So they were the regulators. These were the, the information elements that allowed a protein to be expressed in the right place at the right time, therefore allowing it to have its correct function. So that became very much at the time my focus was using what at the time was called comparative genomics, because at that time we had the human genome and then we had the mouse genome and we had, you know, every few months there was a new genome. And so you could start comparing them and asking the question, which regions in the junk DNA show evidence of being conserved? And the hypothesis was these regions were genetic switches that were very important to control the activity of the proteins. So at the end of my bachelor's, I actually entered the cardiology field. So I went to the laboratory of, uh, of a professor called uh, Nilesh Samani. Actually, now he's called Sir Nilesh Samani. So he actually happens now to be the, the, uh, the president of the British Heart Foundation, which is a major uh, organization in the UK supporting research in cardiology. And his lab was one of the world leading labs in understanding how genetic variation causes heart diseases. And what was becoming apparent even then was a lot of the heritability, the genetic mutations and variations that predisposes you to cardiac disease, they realized wasn't being found in the proteins. It was being found outside in the dark genome, in the junk DNA. So 
when I went to his lab, the, the, the purpose of, of that PhD project was to start understanding these non-protein coding genetic switches that can control gene programs, proteins in, in the heart, both in uh, heart development and, and disease. So I spent four years as a PhD. Uh, I spent four years trying to dissect some of these non-coding genetic switches for a, a protein that was important in uh, cardiac development and function. Uh, and I, I, I succeeded with my PhD. Uh, I'd found these uh, three genetic switches for this gene uh, that was called myocyte stress one at the time. Uh, but at the same time, there was another revolution happening in biology. The sequencing of the human genome and the rapid acceleration of sequencing technologies, which we call genomics, it was accelerating exponentially. And all of a sudden, we had the tools to start studying uh, the, the dark genome in a very, very large systematic uh, way. And what I realized towards the end of my PhD was, okay, this is my, my future area of interest, finding these genetic switches. Uh, but I also realized that the emergence of all these sequencing technologies meant that instead of spending four years to dissect three genetic switches for one gene, we now had the possibilities to dissect all the genetic switches in the whole genome in a disease or a tissue uh, of interest. And that's when I then transitioned uh, to a postdoctoral position, uh, University College London, exploring the proteins that bind these genetic switches. So obviously it takes two to tango. You have the software and you have the hardware that interact holistically to regulate the activity of the dark genome. And it was at that moment that these emerging uh, sequencing technologies started to raise the prospect of looking at this more globally, for example, in heart disease. And that was really the moment in which I uh, had the opportunity actually to move to Switzerland. So uh, after my postdoctoral studies in, in, uh, in London, I moved to Switzerland to actually start a project using fantastic uh, access to these genomic capabilities and uh, computational biology and bioinformatics to explore them uh, at the University Hospital of Lausanne, leveraging uh, a lot of support from the Swiss Institute of Bioinformatics. Uh, I started a project saying, okay, the dark genome is likely to be very important because of genetics and because of this process called epigenetics in controlling, for example, heart disease. Let's start curating the dark genome in heart disease. Let's build an atlas, an unbiased atlas to assess how does the dark genome function in, for example, a heart attack. And that was really the project that I established when I moved to, to Switzerland. Uh, and this was uh, in the, uh, around 2011, 12. And as I just mentioned, there was this acceleration of sequencing technologies, which didn't just allow you to look at DNA and things associated with DNA like epigenetics. It also allowed you to look in an unbiased way at RNA. And at that time, the, the, the prevailing concept was most of the RNA is an uh, intermediate between DNA and protein, so messenger RNA, which I'm sure your audience knows quite well, especially with the use of messenger RNA exactly, as, as, vaccines. as vaccines. <laughs> but the cheap and accessible accelerating sequencing technologies men, we could, in very unbiased, say, let's look at all of the RNA in a cell. And then around that time, 2009, in fact, uh, there was this other huge surprise. So the second big surprise, after the understanding that most of your DNA doesn't code for protein, the second big surprise was most of the RNA in your cell is not translated into protein. Most of the RNA your cell produces is from the dark genome and it has no coding potential. So it doesn't function as a template for protein synthesis. It has an RNA dependent function. And what was becoming very apparent was potentially all these really interesting regulatory functions of the dark genome, they use RNA to transact those functions. And so that was actually the, the project that I, I developed at the university hospital uh, here in Lausanne was let's profile the dark genome and let's look for all of these new RNAs that are probably very important in controlling the activity of the dark genome. So over about eight years, actually, uh, the research team, uh, we, we went on to really build some of the first atlases of these dark genome RNAs in, in cardiovascular disease. Uh, 
we discovered a number of them which have now gone on to be very well-known novel genes. So uh, an example would be Whisper, which is the lead uh, target of our therapeutic approach at Hire. But I also want to mention we discovered a long non-coding RNA. This is the technical term for these dark genome RNAs called Carmen, which is emerging as one of the most important genes in controlling smooth muscle cell biology and, and atherosclerosis. And so that was very much biology focused. Let's understand the dark genome. Let's understand the RNAs. Are they regulating these gene programs that control heart disease? But at that moment, towards the end of my academic career, on the horizon in the biotech world uh, was the emergence of drugging RNA. So developing new therapeutic modalities that allow you to actually directly make drugs that target RNA, not protein. So you can, this is the whole field of RNA therapeutics. So we have synthetic molecules of DNA and RNA themselves can be drugs. So some of your audience might know small interfering RNAs that obviously the discovery led to a Nobel Prize RNA interference. Before then, we'd already realized that you could make synthetic DNA, uh, uh, RNA hybrids called oligonucleotides, which could also induce RNA interference. And these discoveries of 20 years before were now starting to get into the clinic. It was now being demonstrated that as a modality, RNA interference using oligonucleotides as a therapy could be effective and more importantly, could be safe and accessible. And that was really the genesis of HIRE because what we discovered was all of these dark genome RNAs, which we realized were really important regulators of heart disease, and they had characteristics of the dark genome, which make them very attractive drug targets. So I haven't had a chance to mention, but when you look at the building blocks of life, the bricks, the same bricks are used all over the body, okay, for different things. So the proteins tend to not be very specific in their tissue distribution. One protein can be in the kidney controlling a process. The same protein can be controlling a slightly different process in the heart. Now, throughout the history of drug development, all pharmaceuticals are targeting proteins. And what this typically means is you have to be very careful from a safety perspective because your drug might have a very efficacious effect on the protein, for example, in the heart. But if the drug, which like most drugs are administered systemically, binds the same protein in another tissue like the kidney or the liver, <laughs> it could actually have a toxic effect. Yeah, then you have the side effects. Mm -hmm. That's what leads to side effects. So this is one of the major issues in drug development, you know, selectivity and specificity in terms of uh, affecting the process and the target in the right tissue at the right time. We've just realized as a community that these building blocks themselves are not very, these bricks themselves are not very tissue specific, but the way they're regulated is extremely tissue specific. And the mechanism that regulates that is via these RNAs from the dark genome. So that was kind of a eureka moment uh, for me personally, which was if we want to drug a, a process that drives disease that's regulated by proteins, instead of trying to make drugs against the proteins, which are found all over the body, and you have potentially a lot of safety issues and also efficacy issues, why don't we actually make drugs, RNA targeting drugs, against the, the, the specific switches that regulate them? And uh, we went on to demonstrate that uh, during my academic work, that you can design synthetic uh, RNA DNA-based drugs that can target these RNAs, block their activity, and then selectively modulate the process that drives the disease in an individual tissue, which from a safety perspective is very, very exciting as a drug developer, but also from an efficacy and a potency perspective, it's very exciting because fundamentally, most of the diseases we care about, like heart disease and diseases associated with fibrosis, they're diseases caused by your lifestyle. And if you want to understand how is your lifestyle interpreted by your genome to control disease driving cell states, all of that information processing of lifestyle signals happens in the dark genome. So even from a potency perspective, it's better to drug the process at the root cause, which is the dark genome's interface with the environment. So these two things combined, which is we have a very potent and effective way of 
drugging these processes because we're targeting the interface between the environment and the genome. And the fact that the targets themselves are incredibly specific, we believed means that we have a new therapeutic hypothesis and a biological target class for extremely effective and very, very safe medicines. And the final part really to the puzzle when you think about commercializing and developing drugs is you want your drug to be very, very safe. Of course, you need it to be very effective. But if it's not accessible, then you're, no one you're, benefits from it. Nobody yeah. benefits <laughs> from it. And what have we discovered over the last uh, five years? That RNA and DNA-based medicines are become rapidly accessible because the ability to design them, synthesize them, produce them is uh, significantly faster than other types of drug modalities. And the cost to produce them is decelerating exponentially. So using RNA therapeutics, you can create highly accessible medicines that when targeted to the dark genome can be very safe and very potent. And that's really how we think about uh, drug development and discovery at, at higher. And so you're targeting one particular heart disease, right? I think it's heart failure. So it's a reduction, let's say, in the in the functioning of the heart, reduction in the cardiac output. Um, so how do you go about it? And how, the, let's say, the drug that you guys are working on would function in that sense? Absolutely. So heart failure is a very complex heterogeneous disease syndrome. And we've had some success over the last 50 years, but I think it's fair to say that heart failure is still... The one of the world's largest killers and is an incredibly high unmet medical need. And just to provide some context, one of the reasons for that is because many forms of heart failure, especially heart failure with diastolic dysfunction, mm -hmm. so where the relaxation of the heart is impacted, yeah. which actually impacts 50% of the heart failure population, so millions of patients. Uh, there is no therapies. There are no through, uh, approved therapies to treat that. And that's partly because of how we've thought about treating heart failure. So historically, what we've tried to do to treat heart failure is reduce the pressure and the load on the heart. And we do this through what's called neurohormonal modulation. So I'm sure some of your audience are aware of ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers. These are all, <coughs> excuse me, uh, these are all targets involved in the renin-angiotensin uh, system that reduce the pressure and the load on the heart, which has brought transformational benefit to some heart failure patients over the last 50 years. But ultimately, they're, they're symptomatic therapies that do not actually target the heart itself or the disease-driving processes within the heart. Now, what we've realized happens in heart failure is your lifestyle and different genetic mutations they cause a stress on the heart, which leads to it to change its shape, to remodel and change its structure. And if you then ask the question, what are the disease driving processes that cause this? What we've understood is there's a process called fibrosis, which is called tissue scarring. So it's essentially when tissues are scarring, it's when cells that become stressed start producing collagen to try to repair an injury. But unfortunately, what happens is a chronic stress, like a lifestyle associated stress, like high blood pressure, like diabetes, uh, many other types of stresses, or a chronic stress caused by a genetic mutation that constantly keeps the heart stressed, it leads to a hyperactivation of tissue scarring. And the expansion of tissue scarring in the heart makes the heart become stiff. So it affects its ability to contract and relax. All of this tissue scarring affects the ability of electri electricity to go through the heart. So it influences the whole electrophysiology, yeah, electrophysiology of the heart. And actually, we've now realized it's, it's a causal driver of heart failure more broadly is fibrosis. But guess what? We have no drugs that neither target the heart or fibrosis. And actually, fibrosis in general across all tissues is responsible for one in three deaths. So one in three deaths are as a cause of fibrosis. When this scarring happens in the lungs, in the liver, in the kidney, in the heart, it causes organ dysfunction and, and death. And we only have two drugs approved in the world that can combat fibrosis in a relatively modest way, specifically in the lung. Now, this comes back to the whole discussion around the dark genome. Fibrosis is caused by these cells, which you find all over the body. And as an industry, 
the community has been trying to block fibrosis for decades by targeting these proteins that are really important in controlling fibrosis. But the same proteins don't just control fibrosis in the heart, they also control the same cells everywhere else in the body, which means that you typically either get failure because of safety signals or failure in clinical development because efficacy is not very potent and that is typically linked to the dose that you can use. You have to use a dose of the drug which doesn't give you a potent enough effect, so it's not very efficacious because of the limitations of toxicity. So when you merge those two things together, you realize heart failure is caused by fibrosis. Developing drugs for fibrosis is very difficult because there's no tissue specificity in the process of fibrosis. Heart failure is also a response to the environment. So merging those concepts, we realized that the dark genome gives us a very effective way to control how the heart responds to the environment and activates fibrosis. And the targets that we find are very specific only to the heart. Therefore, we have a paradigm to block fibrosis in a very tissue-specific way in the heart, which we believe, and, and many others now are demonstrating that, can have a very powerful effect on outcomes in heart failure. Because the two most important outcomes that everybody focuses on in heart failure, not surprisingly, is death. So once you're diagnosed with heart failure, your probability of death over five years is comparable to a very advanced uh, malignancy. Very, very, very lethal. The mortality rates are very high. But independent of mortality is the morbidity aspect. Heart failure patients, once diagnosed, they're spending so much time in hospitalization. They're hospitalized for heart failure. And this has a huge burden on healthcare systems worldwide. Now, what we've realized as a community, especially the cardiologists have, have realized is fibrosis is the singular most powerful driver of hospitalization for heart failure and death in heart failure patients. So bringing all these things together, we think we have a, an approach that can very safely and effectively block fibrosis specifically in the heart, which we believe will be transformational for these outcomes in, in heart failure patients. And so without going into too many details regarding the development of that treatment, where are you guys standing? So right now we are in what's called uh, the final stages of preclinical development. So we're in what's called investigational new drug enabling studies. So IND enabling toxicology studies, which is taking our compound that we've been developing over the last couple of years and ensuring that it is safe before we start first in human clinical trials. So based on our current roadmap and plan, Uh, we're on track to actually uh, potentially enter the clinic with a first in human clinical trial towards the end of next year, 2024. Oh, so yeah. the focus of the next 12 to 18 months is to be uh, enabled by the regulatory authorities to start a first in human clinical trial uh, towards the end of 2024, early 2025. Oh, yeah, that's that's rather... Rather soon. <laughs> yes, it's uh, time flies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've you founded a company three years ago, so it's still like young, but yeah. then, that's crazy. Um, I haven't had so much time to dive um, into the topic during the preparation of the episode, but um, I still thought I'd bring up the question, maybe naively hoping that there is a link to what we discussed before. But when I think about the term uh, fibrosis, the concept of aging comes to my mind. Um, is there any implication that you are exploring with Haya on that end? So I think, what, what can I say there is, first of all, uh, it's, it's, it's on our website. You can see our investors. So we have a very, very well-known, respected uh, investor called Apollo Health Ventures, who their focus, their whole mission is uh, longevity. So I'm sure that gives you a flavor of why they might be interested in hire is, I think, very linked to what you've just said. What we realize is age-associated organ dysfunction there is a strong component of fibrosis associated with that. And just biological time <laughs> leads to uh, effects on specific cell types in different tissues. Obviously, you have the process of senescence and how senescent cells communicate with other cells in certain tissues. And definitely one of the hallmarks that's emerging in a tissue-specific manner of aging is age-associated tissue scarring and fibrosis. So absolutely, we believe that in the long term, the targets that we're identifying that can very specifically control fibrosis in a tissue specific way could potentially be imagined as 
prophylactic therapies to slow down, put a break on this age-associated fibrotic process. And of course, if you could significantly reduce age-associated tissue fibrosis, the tissue function, tissue structure will be preserved uh, over time. So I think it's a very astute observation and uh, absolutely in the future, I think the biology we're working on is highly relevant to uh, age-associated tissue dysfunction and age-associated diseases. Because not just from the fibrosis angle, but you probably saw the recent work that was published. There was a lot of attention, a recent study published in Cell, how aging is an information problem linked to reprogramming or disprogramming of the epigenome. Now, uh, haven't had a chance to dive too deeply, but the epigenome is the dark genome. <laughs> Most of the epigenetic programming that happens is happening in the dark genome. And if it's true that uh, we can start to rejuvenate cells and tissues by reprogramming the epigenome, well, of course, the dark genome and the RNAs produced by it could be perfect drug targets to induce this epigenetic reprogramming associated with aging. So. We think our platform and our approach going forward um, can really be applied broadly uh, outside of fibrosis. And, and, and for example, aging is definitely an area of interest. Oh, the potential is huge. Um, going back to the, the treatment that you guys are working on at the moment, do you already have an idea of how this, like what would be like the, um, let's say the, the care pathway or like the experience from the patients? Like is that, would that be administered like Sure. The traditional drugs we have for cardiac diseases are administered, like, how so, would that be? So this is a great question. So the initial patient population, maybe I, I, I won't go too technical on this uh, uh, discussion, but it's patients with heart failure as a consequence of a genetic mutation. So there is a, 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 a rare genetic disease, although it's unfortunately not as rare as, as people realize, called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So this is a disease where you inherit mutations that impacts how your heart contracts. And this malfunction in contractility uh, activates fibrosis. And then unfortunately what happens to these patients is over time they become symptomatic for heart failure. And of course then they go on to suffer the outcomes that are associated with heart failure, including sudden cardiac death caused by arrhythmia. And obviously tissue scarring is a major substrate for inducing uh, arrhythmia. Yep. So these patients and a subset of these patients uh, with the form of the disease called non-obstructive HCM, they have no, no uh, therapies to, to help them. Um, and they have a lot of fibrosis. So the idea of our initial approach is to really see if our antifibrotic approach can bring meaningful benefit to them, both in terms of improving their symptoms, because fibrosis effect on the heart leads to a lot of the symptoms, struggling to walk, uh, you know, down the corridor, up the stairs, always being out of breath. Uh, that then has impacts on many uh, other dif different symptoms. So as well as the, the outcomes that I, that, that I mentioned before. So what we envisage is these patients, uh, usually you only know about these patients when they become symptomatic. Exactly. Yeah. And we know that upon being symptomatic, the fibrotic burden and the, the, the progression of fibrosis is really important. So we believe our approach can not only block the progression of fibrosis, but we also have evidence, preclinical evidence, that through our mechanism of action, we can reverse established fibrosis. So, so from a clinical per practice perspective, these patients would, upon diagnosis, they'd be administered, I would say between every uh, eight to 12 weeks, they would be administered this, this RNA therapy. Mm -hmm. And essentially it'd be administered in a similar way to a vaccination. Okay. So mm -hmm. it wouldn't be oral. Um, yep. the, the way you have to administer this next generation of RNA therapeutics drugs is typically either intravenously or subcutaneously. So we would imagine that these patients upon diagnosis on an eight to 12 week basis would go to uh, their healthcare provider and they'd essentially receive a shot, uh, a subcutaneous administered uh, dose of the drug. And then of course they'd be monitored over time. Uh, and hopefully this will have a significant impact in their symptoms. But more importantly, obviously long-term, is this will stop these patients needing a heart transplant, which becomes a huge burden, an issue. And unfortunately for many of them, it, it doesn't happen. 
and uh, allow them to, to have a better quality of life and not spend a lot of time in hospital. And obviously, ultimately, death is the ultimate uh, outcome that we want to, mm -hmm. to prevent. Yeah, I can really relate to this because I, I, I work on um, heart failure more like on the remote monitoring side of it. So it's not a treatment, but it's how, to, how do you ensure that, you know, the patients stay out of the hospital by measuring certain biomarkers that are like weight, activity, different different things. And then you can, you know, adjust the medication titration based on that, or you can admit them earlier, which has like also positive outcomes on, yeah. I mean, what, what you're saying there is so important and, you know, One thing I didn't mention about the dark genome and these RNAs is, and we have a, a we have a, a a platform within Hire that is called View Hire, and View Hire is leveraging the observation that many of these RNAs, even though they're only produced in the heart, a fraction of them can be detected in the whole blood in the circulation. So we actually have very active program using these RNAs as biomarkers, because one of the major problems in in uh, heart failure, especially linked to fibrosis, is unless you do cardiac MRI imaging, there's no way you can measure it through there's blood no way sampling. You can measure yeah. it. So mm -hmm. we actually have some very exciting uh, pilot data, both in animal models as well as in patients, where these tissue-specific regulators of fibrosis we can detect in whole blood, which means from a, a whole blood sample we can potentially predict fibrosis, but in the heart. That's really cool. Yeah. So dark genome can also transform diagnostics and biomarkers. Absolutely. Yeah, this is mind mind blowing. Um, I mean, I, I'm discovering all these topics, and it's it's crazy. Um, so with all the knowledge that you have on epigenetics and potential risk factors for cardiac diseases, do you have any principles or routines that you apply in your daily life in over in order to keep a good Ooh. cardiovascular? Yeah, I mean, uh, life. Nobody is perfect. Uh, <laughs> I think, obviously, we know all the lifestyle risks. Mm -hmm. I think an underappreciated lifestyle risk that I'll probably emphasize now is stress. And I think as a founder and as a CEO, that's definitely uh, uh, an area of life where there's a lot happening. Yeah, um, I can imagine. So I, I do try to develop tools and, and develop a mindset that can handle those pressures and stress because you know, independently of what you eat and all the other lifestyle risks in your genetics, I think stress is highly underappreciated, mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. for heart disease, but for all disease. Uh, and so I, I try to, you know, I like to walk. Uh, I like to go for long, long walks. Uh, that's really de-stressing. And uh, there's mm -hmm. other things that I, I try to do to, to manage, for example, pressure and stress which is a huge risk factor. <laughs> It's interesting to see how different people, like I interviewed us as well, Nicola Durand, yeah. that you might know from yes. Avionic. He's of doing uh, aerobatics. So wow. he goes into a yeah. plane and he does loopings and that's the way he's I mean, that's really fascinating down, you know? because I think I can understand why something like that would be so exciting from a stress relief perspective because <laughs> when you're doing something that requires so much There's attention, nothing behind after all. Yeah, you don't think about anything else. So, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe I need to do something a bit more risky than uh, long walks. <laughs> <laughs> That might, that's good advice. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sami. I mean, we, we've covered a lot of topics you've explained in such a clear way with lots of uh, you know, analogies, what, what, the, what the dark genome is about. I think it's not an easy topic to understand. So I know it's like an, a, somehow a complicated exercise, and I think you, you did it marvel marvelously. So very much appreciate it. At the end of the episodes i i come up with a few recurring questions to every guest and the first one that i would like uh, that i would have would be about you know whether would there be any resources that you would recommend um us to check out in order to know more about the field in which we will be books publications sure i mean i think uh there's a lot on youtube which you'd be surprised how many interesting presentations and, and perspectives there are i'd also I'd also say to the listeners, follow Hire. Of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, Hire, we have Twitter, we have LinkedIn, we have a YouTube channel. We, we are trying hard in the company. Even though we're very young and early company, one of the things we've realized uh, is solutions are only useful if people can understand and apply them. So we care a lot about trying to, I guess you would call it educate, educate the community, yeah. mm -hmm. both the, the general uh, audience, but also the scientific and the drug development community. So we do try hard to make the dark genome and the and the uh, the potential of the dark genome 
relatable and understandable to the wider audience. So so please follow Hire's social. Hopefully the, the things there you will see that will give you some insights into what we're doing, our website, for example. But more globally, I mean, there's some... Uh, there's a there's a lot of pioneers in the in this space. I mean, just to name a couple, there's there's I would consider him kind of the the grandfather of the whole field of of long non-coding RNAs and the potential of RNAs is a it's an academic called John Matic. Uh, he recently published a tour de force book on RNA as at the epicenter of biology. It's a very recently published book. Uh, I would highly recommend that if you really want to understand the past, the present, and the future of molecular biology, because it provides a great contextualization of the history of genetics. Uh, he's always been presenting this perspective that Molecular biology, the evolution of molecular biology has followed the, the zeitgeist of the world in which it was born. And, you know, the, the foundation of molecular biology, you can really trace back to, you know, Watson's and Crick's description of, of DNA mm -hmm. and the central mm -hmm. dogma, which was very much in a mechanical age. Uh, rather than in an information age. And, and that has had an influence on how we think about biology. It's very protein-centric. It's very mechanical. When actually biology is very information-rich and more like software. It's, a, it's an information continuum. Uh, and I think John Matic is really one of those kind of forward, uh, way ahead of his time as a, as a scientist and a thinker in terms of how to think about the genome in general, and in particular, how to think about the dark genome. So I would recommend anything by John Matic. Um, I think there are, you know, global experts who pioneered our understanding of gen uh, epigenetics and genetics in the dark genome. One individual I think who's a real pioneer is Manolis Kellis, uh, who the reason I mention him is not just from an academic perspective, but he's also done some podcasts which are very accessible to the the general public. So, so I would I would definitely recommend somebody like him as well. Great, I'll put all the all the notes in the in the show notes. Um, could you share with us an anecdote from your work which made you realize the impact that you were having on patients' life, knowing that you know their treatment Ooh. is still in development? Um, yeah, an, an amazing question, and I, I'll tell you why. Because, well, first of all, heart failure and heart disease, like probably half of your audience, has deeply impacted me personally with respect to family and friends. I think all of us have probably, uh, unfortunately, had loved ones suffering from heart-related diseases. Uh, so that's always been a strong motivator. But if we talk about our lead indications, so this hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, a rare disease patient population, it's actually happened very, very recently. I was at a conference uh, uh, three weeks ago in Boston, actually, the uh, HCM conference, so on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and on heart failure. They merged the conference together, which I think was very interesting. And there I was extremely fortunate both to watch a presentation, then meet and spend some personal time with uh, Lisa Salberg, so she is actually the president and founder of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, which is really, the I would say, the world's leading patient advocacy group for these patients. She herself is a survivor. So she unfortunately has a, a family history and a lot of tragedy in her family of members passing uh, because of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. She herself was fortunate in that she had a heart transplant in 2017 uh, so she she is still with us and really driving our understanding of what these patients need uh, globally for this patient population. And But what was really incredible about that meeting is not just hearing her story and the story of her patients. She actually brought with her, which I think is really incredible, she actually brought with her her heart and the hearts of some of her association members after they'd been transplanted. And so to actually hold somebody's heart in your hand and... The first thing she said actually was, look at all the scarring in my heart. Her heart, her interventricular septum, her ventricular wall, you could just see the scarring. She actually suffered with the type of HCM that we're trying to treat. So when you're holding the heart of somebody in front of you who luckily are with us because of transplant, but that scarring would have been terminal for her. And unfortunately, some of the other hearts she had with her are from some of her association members who sadly didn't survive. That very much brings a, a very, very strong perspective on what we're doing and how important it is that we uh, try to take our approach as fast as possible. Because uh, Lisa, uh, I believe she, she mentioned she has a niece, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, these diseases are genetic and yeah, it's not just for it their patients well. today, it's for their family members. And that absolutely uh, 
definitely had a strong impact on on uh, on the urgency of getting our approach hopefully into patients as soon as possible. Yeah, it's a very, very touching story. And you brought up a very good point that, you know, you mentioned that Lisa had a heart transplant. That's the ultimate solution that but we have for now. Only solution. And, you know, you you, you know, you're in the, you're, you have a, a knowledge in this space. I mean, that, that is not a solution. No. Uh, and uh, especially it's not a solution for the one in five people globally who develop heart failure uh, at some point in their, in their life. So, yeah, we absolutely need breakthrough therapies fast. So you already mentioned some of the pioneers in the field and people you, you very much look up to. Um, is there any any other people you would mention as potential guests for the podcast eventually? So this, yeah, this is, I mean, there's many, many entrepreneurs and scientists who I, I could absolutely uh, recommend. But I think uh, one of the key lessons and experiences I've had. Obviously, I came straight from academia with no background in business and tried to build a company and uh, and attract the interest of investors and work closely with investors. And I think probably one guest that would be really uh, interesting would be from the investor side. Uh, and actually, one of our investors, actually our lead investor, a uh, gentleman called Benjamin Kreitman, uh, he's a great example of investors who think carefully about the biology and the science and how to translate that and, and, and potentially develop it uh, from a commercially viable therapeutic perspective. And the reason I would recommend somebody like him is because I'm sure many of your audience are scientists who, who have dreams about their science and how it can change the world and how it can impact patients. But there's a critical gating factor, which is, Does the science actually provide a meaningful, commercially viable way to help patients? And there, when you have really knowledgeable uh, investors, that can transform how you think in terms of uh, developing the company and in terms of developing your value proposition. So I think having an investor's perspective on this podcast could be very useful and helpful as well for some of your audience who are considering taking this path in the future. That would be wonderful. I never had the chance yet to, to talk with an investor on the show. So that would be great. How can we get in touch with you? Um, over email, uh, LinkedIn? The easiest way to get in touch with me would definitely be LinkedIn. Uh, so I am very active on, on LinkedIn. I think it's a great platform that allows people to connect. Twitter, uh, I also like to, to use uh, uh, Twitter. And of course, via the website. Great. Um, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? No, thank, thank you for the opportunity. It's great to be on this podcast. Uh, uh, I think you've had some amazing guests, so it's a, real, it's a real pleasure to be one of your guests. Oh, it's great. Thank you so much, Sammy. I mean, we can feel, you know, the passion you have for what you're doing and it's, it's super inspiring. Like I had a, a great time. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. All the notes are available in the episode description. If you liked it, don't hesitate to share it with your relatives, friends or colleagues and subscribe to the podcast. I would be extremely grateful if you could leave a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really helps Impulse move up in the rankings. Feel free to reach out to me by email or through LinkedIn if you want to share your feedback, questions or suggest potential guests. Thanks a lot and see you in the next one.